On this episode of AvTalk, we review an awful week for European airlines and the largest peacetime repatriation effort in history. And we talk with Qantas 787 Fleet Captain Lisa Norman to get the details on the upcoming Project Sunrise test flights. Hello and welcome to episode 67 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz and I'm on vacation as of today. How are you doing though? I'm not that good. I am not on vacation. I'm not going on vacation. Oh. But I'm happy that you are. That's right. You used all of your allowed days out of the house a couple weeks ago to go Ex- to Roswell. Exactly. Yeah, so sorry. Visit the aliens and all that fun stuff, so... Worth it. I thought it was. I thought we had a great time. We sure did. And wait, where are you going? I'm vacation. Going to vacation. I'm going to Vietnam to meet up with a friend of the podcast, Seth Miller, by way of LaGuardia, Detroit, Seoul, and then Hanoi, then a bunch of stops in Vietnam on Bamboo Airways, Vietjet Air, Jetstar Pacific train here or there and then all the way back to New York via Seattle and Seoul. That sounds like a, a good trip. Yeah, this is what a, a true aviation geek or someone who, you know, might not be totally right in the head does when they go on vacation is they go to a very to far away both. country and fly a bunch of low cost airlines for fun. You'll get Bamboo Airways, which is – are you going to be on there? What are you flying? Because, I mean, they're taking delivery of all sorts, like a hodgepodge right now. Yeah, it's scheduled to be an A321, but in reality, who knows? I'll be happy on any any of their aircraft. I think they took delivery of an X – was it Vietnam A330 recently? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Yeah, I didn't even see that in the schedule. It's funny. Bamboo is such a new airline. A lot of the apps I use to track my flights, like Flighty Now and TripIt, they don't even know Bamboo Airways exists at this point. So that'll be fun. Good luck. Thank you. If only there were some sort of app that you could use to actually track the aircraft. We'll look into that and talk about it on the next podcast. Yes, we'll, we'll put out an RFP for such a thing. Uh-huh. Shall we get to the news at hand? Because such as it is, there's a lot of it. Okay, let's go. Thomas Cook. Oh, boy. Gone. Yeah. Uh, XL Airways, zombie. Also, yeah, not quite gone, but not not really. Still flying, totally but there. not selling tickets. No one really knows why. It's yeah. Pardon my French. El Lazur is gone, and Adria Airways is going going. Man, it it, it has been a week. You it's know been that a week. typical gift from the movie Airplane of uh, the guy sniffing glue. Yep. It, it's it's been that kind of week. It's been a very very long week for European airline everything. So from the top, Thomas Cook over the weekend, this past weekend, the warning bells were starting to go off. The warning bells have been going off for for quite some time. Yeah. The the writing has been on the wall for Thomas Cook for quite some time and they were hoping to get a last minute deal to to salvage everything. I think 200 million pounds or or euros, I'm not sure which, but uh, unfortunately that did not happen. Yeah, so so the there was a refinancing agreement, recapitalization agreement that they had agreed to for nine hundred million pounds, and then almost the last minute, 
the banking partners that they were working with asked for an additional 200 million pounds. And that was just too much. So come Monday at 2 a.m. local time, Thomas Cook UK stopped stopped trading effectively was stopped dis- everything stopped everything was was dissolved the airline flights that were in the air continued and the U- united kingdom's civil aviation authority began what they are terming the world's largest peacetime repatriation effort yes so the uk has a particularly odd bankruptcy procedure basically when a company declares bankruptcy that's all she wrote that's it all activities stops nothing else goes on business comes to a complete close um, as opposed to the elsewhere in the world like the US every airline almost every airline has been through a reorg or a chapter 11 bankruptcy at some point to get their financials and debt in order and they keep operating um, but in the UK you declare bankruptcy that's it you're done and it got to the point where it was literally there was a fight in the middle of or about to begin boarding at JFK this was the last flight out of North America for Thomas Cook for the day uh, the bags have been loaded on the plane. There was a gate agent. They were just about to begin boarding, and that's it. Thomas Cook went out of business. No, no fight for you. Yeah, I mean, it, in even though if it's a, to the credit of the UKCAA, they got those folks on a plane with I, I think what was it a six-hour delay? Yeah, the flight was supposed to take off at 10 p.m. for Thomas Cook, and they ended up taking off at 4 a.m., which is an annoying delay, but no worse than uh, your your every now and again Norwegian flight, I guess. So, I mean, all things considered, your airline going out of business, typically you don't get to fly home that day on a plane. So that was really well done by them. In this case, they happened to position an Atlas Air 747-400 already at JFK. I don't know why it took quite so long to get things going because the aircraft was there for 12 hours ahead of time. But the the mere fact that they got out the same day, extremely impressive. Yeah. And, and the the repatriation efforts by the UK CAA have been no less than in a vast array of airlines you may or may not have heard of before. Ah, I see what you did there. So there's the ones that are, you know, most notable probably for, you know, uh, Virgin Atlantic, British Airways. They are putting passengers on their existing flights out of the US, um, you know, putting people into and what would have otherwise been empty seats and, and getting them home. For folks in Europe, there are all sorts of random charter carriers, Euro Atlantic, Highfly, Evelop, Freebird, Privilege Style, Danish Air Transport, Gitjet, Atlas Global, Olympus, which is actually operating an ex-Monarch A321 as part of the repatriation effort. So there's kind of a, I don't know what that would, unique irony maybe, Nouvelle Air, and my personal favorite, Maleth Aero. Nice. I think some of these flights are actually also operated by Thomas Cook Aircraft itself. A lot of uh, in the peak summer season, uh, Thomas Cook uses or, or either wet or dry leases aircraft from other airlines, paints it in their own livery, so you'd never know. But those aircraft kept flying. Right. So there's two airlines that were that were operating for Thomas Cook. One was uh, Smartlinks out of I believe it's Estonia, and then the other one is Avion Express. And they are both Thomas Cook liveried aircraft, but they are operated by their respective airlines. And, and so they've been 
continuing part of the repatriation efforts. I missed in there Highfly, I think, and I apologize for that. But there's also the Malaysia Airlines A380 in the mix. Ah, yes. So there there are two A380s. And then the Malathero, that they're operating the A340-600, which is a former Etihad aircraft. That is a sweet ride for when your airline goes out of business. So some folks uh, getting, I mean, not to put a, a light touch on it, but some folks are getting a an improved experience somewhat to get home, but it's still a, a terrible situation. And, and and that goes to without saying anything about the fact that, you know, tens of thousands of people are, you know, out of work. But it, it's been really good to see other airlines and in the UK and train lines and all sorts of, you know, service service businesses say, if you worked for Thomas Cook, you know, we're hiring. Here's a special page. Tell us what you do, what your qualifications are, and and we'll see if we can you know bring you over as quickly as possible. So that's uh, something we've seen in the past when when an airline goes bankrupt. But it, it's good to see that that hopefully a large number of folks who who are working for the airlines will will find a place somewhere else. Yeah, really unfortunate. There are a lot of very very good, very passionate people working for Thomas Cook, which is a very historic brand. The airline wing of the brand may not be. The oldest in the world, but Thomas Cook Travel as a brand itself has a lot of history and it's really disappointing to see it just kind of all evaporate overnight. Yeah. The craziest thing to me is is how these, you know, the, the bankruptcies operate. And like you're talking about, the difference between there and in the US is just it's just done. The the planes get parked and it's done. Yeah, there are a lot of other odd rules in the UK, like if you had already booked package travel but had not departed yet, you get your money back. So consumers are really well protected in this case. But unfortunately, um, all activity just stops. Yeah. We, we should say that it not all Thomas Cook related activity has stopped. Thomas Cook Scandinavia, which was a uh, subsidiary, is back flying. They took a day, canceled all their flights for the day, but now they're back flying for now. And the the German Condor brand, they've been unaffected so far. They've agreed to a loan from one of the German states. So hopefully that keeps them out of trouble for, yeah, for they, a ways to come. They're unaffected in the way that they got a massive loan to continue operating. But uh, as far as flights go, those have operated. They're not business-wise not unaffected. But, right. Uh, but that, but that, certainly – We've seen this before in Germany with Air Berlin. Um, at some point, those loans have to get repaid. But hopefully, Condor can can work through it without its parent company, Thomas Cook, and continue operating for many, many happy years to come. Yeah, that's where we are now. We'll see what happens to the the Thomas Cook fleet. There's more than 30 leased aircraft out there now. So that'll be interesting to see where they end up. And who takes those and what happens to that capacity? Yeah. So to run down the fleet, I believe as a whole, we have Thomas Cook Airlines had 63 aircraft in the fleet, 9320s, 4321s, 8332-200s, and three A330-300s. A couple of those were, were owned outright by the airline, I believe, including the one that is now stranded at JFK. Who knows how long that thing sits there for? Bad week for that since parking is at a super premium with the UN General Assembly here. Um, so I, I don't know where they're stashing that. 
but uh, that is by far the largest of the quadrifecta of airlines that have kicked the bucket this week. Yeah, it's it's quite the fleet. And then there's XL Airways is still going, sort of? Yes, let's talk about XL Airways. They suddenly <laughs> announced last week that we're having financial issues, we're going to stop selling tickets, which generally means it is doublespeak for we're going to stop operating and we're going home now. In this case, that's not what it means. It literally means they're just no longer selling tickets, but they are in, in zombie mode where they continue to operate flights. I don't – have you ever seen anything like this before? It doesn't make any sense to me because if, if you're operating the flights, why not sell tickets on the flights? Maybe it's a dispute with their – whatever uh, agency issues the tickets for them, but then they probably wouldn't be able to operate those flights because they wouldn't know who's on it. I, I don't really know. I haven't seen it before, but – they're still operating their flight to Newark, um, or they, they, some sort of like credit card processing, where you know the the bank won't send them the money or or, or something like that. So they, it could be that we we don't know, and they haven't really provided an update, have they? No, they they just said beginning the twenty third of September. It's currently the twenty fifth of September. Beginning the twenty third of September, we might cancel flights. Yep, might, and that's. All they've said so far, and there's a you go to their homepage and it says passenger information as of well, five days ago, due to financial difficulties, we are deeply sorry to announce that we have stopped selling tickets effective September 19th. And then it just goes on, blah 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 blah. It doesn't really say what's what's happening now. It's wacky, and, and you have to think that you know folks who have already booked those flights that haven't left yet are thinking, do I want? to fly them? Right. So it says they have been placed into receivership by court, uh, some court in France. Passengers can claim with the receiver, but flights are still operating. It's very, very muddy. Yeah. I, I do not understand why or what is happening, but I guess good for them for continuing to operate while they sort this out. And of course, their flight status page is broken, so good luck. <laughs> yeah, the, the the flight status page that you are directed to if you try to find out if your particular flight is canceled doesn't work. Doesn't work. So that's fun. Good luck if you have a flight booked on XL Airways, a rel very small airline, four aircraft in the fleet, three A330-200s and a 300, not a huge loss there and there's a absolute glut of capacity between France and the US especially New York which is one of their destinations again unfortunate for any of the employees but this is just confusing and confused we shall be okay let's continue which let's do postmortems on the the remaining two airlines so we have uh Adria Airways which is a Star Alliance airline based out of where where are they based again they are – so they're based in Eastern – they have bases in Eastern Europe. They have a few bases. One is once – they're Slovenian airline, but they also have bases in Albania and Bosnia-Herzegovina. So it's the kind of the three three places where they, they send a lot of flights, but they're they're based out of Slovenia. So not a huge airline. Uh, total fleet we have of 18, three A319s, two CRJ700s, nine CRJ900s, and four uh, – what's an SB20? That is the uh, Saab 2000. Ah. Oh, that's interesting. 
they have a handful of those. But the A319s, not uh, they have a, a trio of A319s. Those are gone, and the CRJ 900s, I believe, are being taken back as well. So. Th- they're not in a good financial position. No, and this is another airline that we knew this was coming. The hints were there. Uh, September 6th, Ben Schlappig of One Mile at a Time posted an article about how one of their flights to, let's see, where the, this to Vienna was canceled because they were waiting on the other end of the, the flight at the arrival airport to impound the aircraft over an alleged 250 euro. EU-261 compensation, which is basically when a passenger submits compensation request for a flight that was delayed or canceled in the EU, and they they canceled the flight over an alleged 250 euro debt. So if that's not a red flag that things are in bad shape, I don't know what is. So less than 20 days later, the airline's gone. Yeah. So they're, as of the 25th of September, they have canceled flights through the 27th of September, except for their evening flight to Frankfurt. So that we'll see if that operates. And I guess go from there. The the whole thing is all just... It's a good point. When an airline says we're going to stop operating for the next three days, it's very rare that they actually ever resume operating. It's... I can't think of a case where an airline has said, we're going we're gonna to stop and we'll be back and they actually come back. I don't know if you can think of any. I can't. I, there have been a couple where they've suspended routes or things like that, where aircraft have been parked, but the airline has kind of continued operating and then the aircraft have been brought back into service. But I, I can't think of anything where we're, just, we're not going to fly at all, but we'll be back in a week. Yeah. So that is airline number three of four that is either partially or mostly gone. And who's the last? This is again, again, pardon my French, but we have uh, El Azur, woefully mispronouncing that. But it is a uh, another French airline that was in trouble for quite some time and succumbed this week to uh, financial pressure. Yeah, not again, not the, the biggest airline, but these even the smaller airlines matter. They had... One A319, A320s, and a pair of 33200s that were acquired from the downfall of Air Berlin, actually, um, which is, uh, I don't know, <laughs> not, not, not a good omen, but I don't know where those aircraft will end up now, but with uh, they, hopefully they can find a home with, an, with a stable airline. But again, un- unfortunate to see an airline collapse under the weight of its financial debts. It's been a very rough year. I mean, it, yeah. And it's, I guess the, the question at this point is who's next? Because if, you know, if, if things are, if things are starting to, to kind of, you know, domino here, is this a period of, you know, consolidation? Is this something where these were just independent, but kind of co-located in time events? Or is there something going on here that is a bigger trend. I don't have any answers to that right now, but Jason's going to do a whole lot of research while he's on vacation. Oh, totally. And, uh, I and mean, find out next episode. I will say that these airlines are, are going out of business at a point where fuel is high, but it's half of what it was a few years ago where it was topping $100 a barrel. And now we're down to what, 56, I think. So these airlines survived much worse financial atmospheres, and then suddenly now it's just they're all kind of collapsing under the weight of 
debt that I don't know where it's coming from, but something's happening these days where, where operating expenses are just too much for these airlines to handle. Yeah, and and now there's a now there's a good bit of capacity coming back into the market, and I guess one of the questions that I will pose to you is: Does this help with the still grounded seven three seven maxes? I would say almost certainly, since most of these aircraft were leased. I'm assuming they will be quickly pressed into service somewhere. I don't know who will operate them. It's probably happy days for HiFi, but I can't imagine they'll sit around all too all too long. They'll end up finding at least temporary homes at airlines. Like uh, I think I showed you the picture the other day of the Allegiant A320s that were either partially or mostly painted in Allegiant livery, but were actually operating for Kuwait in a hybrid partial livery because their A320 Neos were delayed. I would not be shocked if we see the Thomas Cook fleet doing the same very soon. Yeah. I mean, at some point, a a few of those are going to have kind of like a a third and fourth hand livery where they've, they've moved around so quickly that they've never been fully repainted. And so you're just going to end up with, you know, it's going to look like um, just some sort of weird Frankenplane or something like that as they quickly slap the titles on it and just say, okay, start flying. Well, hopefully none of the five airlines I'm flying on in the next two weeks follow the same fate. I don't think they will, but we'll see. Shall we take a quick break and come back for a fascinating conversation with Captain Lisa Norman, who is the Qantas 787 fleet captain. And we're going to chat about the upcoming Project Sunrise flights that Qantas is about to trial, the the three that are going to occur beginning in October through December. And she'll be captaining two of the flights, and she's also in charge of the preparations and things like that. So we've got a fascinating conversation coming up to, to talk about flying, that long, but also what's going to be happening during the the Project Sunrise test flights. So we will be right back with that conversation. Stay with us. Welcome back to this very special episode of AvTalk. We are now joined by the Qantas 787 fleet manager, Captain Lisa Norman. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're very welcome. So we are here to talk about, among other things, the three Project Sunrise test flights that are coming up beginning next month, uh, one in October, November, and, and the third one in December, one to or one from New York to Sydney, and then two from London to Sydney. And you will be piloting one of the New York to, to Sydney and then one of the London to Sydney flights. Is that correct? Yeah, so what we're going to do, we're actually going to um, reposition some of our delivery flights from Payne to New York, and that will be the October one. And then the second one will be in November, like you say, and that will be from London to Sydney. And we're actually going to do a third one, but we're actually going to position it back to New York and fly New York-Sydney. So there'll be two New Yorks and one Sydney, and I will be on the certainly the first two anyway. 
Let me back up for, for a second and ask you about what it is that, that you do specifically for Qantas. I, we introduced you as the, the fleet manager for the 787, and I would love for you to tell me a little bit more about what that is and, and what you do at the airline. Oh, certainly. I mean, I have a very exciting job. I'm, I think I'm one of the luckiest pilots in the world. I look after the fleet health of the 787, which means I look after the operation of overflight clearances with the NAV team, all the flight planning, look after all the pilots, oversee their training, uh, making sure that the policy and standards are up to our Qantas a standard that we like to uphold everywhere and we've had for you know 99 years nearly and that's my role so i i sort of set the boundaries if you like and make sure that everyone stays within those boundaries and so we also do the delivery and acceptance of new aircraft so i was with our chief technical pilot alex passerini we work with him to uh, fly to Seattle, pick up the new aircraft. We do the acceptance test flying and all the deliveries. And so this is just part of that function now. And we've just, uh, I suppose, repurposed those flights. And uh, we're going to turn the deliver next three delivery flights into these uh, research flights. Wow. You're not kidding. That does sound like an incredible uh, job. I mean, I am so lucky, I can't tell you. So, I I mean, I get to fly these brilliant aeroplanes too, but I also get to manage and do some really cool stuff over in Seattle and Boeing, and these, these research flights are sort of just the next extension. So what is actually going to happen on the flight deck during the research flights? What, beyond obviously flying the aircraft, what's going to be happening up there? Well, that's when it gets really exciting. Uh, and the the flights themselves will, like you say, be our business as usual. So that's what we normally do. But over and above that, we'll do some wellness and alertness monitoring and testing. So the pilots will be wearing EEG gear or brainwave activity, sort of a modified headset, if you like. And and they're very ergonomic, so the pilots can wear them when they're actually on the flight deck so it doesn't interfere with their actual headset and boom microphone. And then they can actually wear them where they're sleeping as well. They'll be asked to do some cognitive activities. There'll be some sleep diaries. There'll be some other wearables. They're looking at sort of watches and things like that that monitor alertness. We're even talking about some urine samples to test for melatonin levels, which I believe hasn't been done before. So there's quite extensive testing pre-flight and also post-flight and also in-flight. I believe we're actually looking at some sort of eye tracking for alertness monitoring now and putting some cameras into the flight deck as well. So it's very exciting. I don't believe that uh, there's been this level of in-depth sort of research into pilot alertness and wellness. So obviously this is critically important for what will end up being the world's longest flight, but are there plans to bring anything that's learned from this to the rest of the fleet or or is this something that's being focused on specifically for the Project Sunrise flights? No, we, we can actually use all of this. I mean, we've got extensive history of doing this sort of uh, wellness and fatigue data testing anyway. We're doing it currently on the Perth London with the 787 crew. They're keeping sleep diaries and we're measuring brainwave activity. So this is part of our, what we have a fatigue risk management system. It's quite robust in Qantas and we use some of our long extensive histi history in the um, sort of the proactive, if you like, field. And then we have a predictive field where we use some science and biomath modeling. And then we have some reactive as well. So 
all this scientific data then will be plugged into our current fatigue risk management system and that will hopefully improve and optimise our current practices and certainly for Sunrise prove that it's just one step in the direction that we're going. But we can actually use all of this data in what we currently do to optimise the pilot's alertness. So this is all pretty amazing. And, and already today, Qantas has some exceptionally long flights, like uh, QF9, the, the Perth to London flight, also on the 787-9. Some of these flights are, are basically 17 hours takeoff to touchdown. Um, actual time in the aircraft is obviously a bit longer than that, maybe up to an extra hour uh, boarding and deplaning time. How long are you expecting these these trial flights to be for Project Sunrise? Yes, that's a good question. Uh, the flights we're expecting, uh, just the flight time, about 18 and a half hours. We're seeing, we're running plans every day and we're seeing sort of 18.25 to 18 um, hours 38 at the moment. Uh, that's just purely flight time. You have to add taxi time onto that. Um, so that's in our northern winter when we do Perth, London, we're seeing those sort of flight times maybe 17.40. This is probably 45 minutes longer. We've been doing Dallas-Sydney for a while now on the 380 and that, that can get up around 17 and a half hours as well. So the London-Sydney and the New York-Sydney are about the same flight time, even though you know there's a difference between the the distance it's just because of the jet streams as we get from as we come down from JFK or New York to Sydney as we get into the southern hemisphere you start to pick up some jet streams as you get into Australia and they can be up to 150 knots on the nose so very very strong jet stream tailwind uh, sorry headwind and uh, that can add an hour to the flight even though it's a shorter distance it's something like 16,200 kilometers and London Sydney's 17,800 but ironically they're about the same flight time. So you mentioned the taking advantage of the jet stream but I also wanted to ask about looking at the the great circle routes especially from from London to to Sydney it takes the the great circle route takes the flight over some areas of of Chinese airspace where there aren't any actual flight routes which you know, partly due to the Himalayas and then partly due to just how the Chinese airspace is structured. So I was wondering what route the, the flights might actually plan versus the, the Great Circle route. That's another good question. We're actually working really extensively on that now to uh, the optimized route, the most optimized route we're looking at is exactly as you say, coming down through Russia and China. And we're actually coming down over sort of head Hong Kong, if you like. So most people think we head through the Middle East, you know, over Saudi Arabia and India, and then over the uh, Indian Ocean to Australia. But in fact, the, the most optimized route is through, like you say, Russia, China. And we're working quite closely with our NAV team and to get the navigation approvals and overflight clearances. And like you say, then there's the consideration around terrain. The 787 is very capable aircraft in terms of terrain. We used to fly you know, the 767 had probably more restrictions, but this aircraft, even from a depressurized, it's got a it's got a much higher profile than the other twin engines. So we've got much more flexibility with this aircraft than we have on previous aircraft. Crew-wise on board, what is it going to look like for the augmented crews? How many pilots do you expect to have on a flight that's this long? Or, or is there going to be any sort of enhancements to the crew bunk on board or what are you going to do during your downtime on this flight? Is there going to be anything special or is it going to be pretty much like a, a regular flight, just a lot longer? 
Yeah, this look, this for us is our bread and butter. This is what Qantas do. This is actually not much longer than what we already do. So for us, we'll have um, four pilots like we normally have four pilots. The crew rest, the overhead crew rest facility on the 787 is very comfortable. It is, so it's a, it's a stock standard. We obviously provide, you know, some bedding and pillows and such. So it's just a normal flight for us from a crew point of view. When when the flights start to get a bit longer than this, like 20 plus hours, like we're talking sunrise, that's where we start looking at because you'll have times of work activity on the flight deck, if you like, and then you'll have times of sleep. And that w- what we're sort of progressing towards is what happens when there's those in-between times. What are we looking at doing for the crew, for the passengers? And that's where this research can really come into its own and we can develop further ways to manage those times, if you like, because there is only so much time people sleep and only so much time people work. So in talking with Boeing quite a lot on this subject because they did a round-the-world flight 42 hours and they had six pilots. They had one stop in the middle for two hours on the ground and I was asking them how did they choose six pilots and it was a really interesting conversation. They did a lot of study and research behind it because if they had too many pilots, then that time of not sleeping and not being used on the flight deck, sort of the working time, became too great and what would you do to manage that? So they ended up going with six pilots and managing the crew accordingly. What we do as a normal flight, and this is no different this flight, the crew manage their rests sort of not by, it used to be when we first started on the 747, two hours on and two hours off. That became very prescriptive. So we leave it up to the crew how they're going to manage their rest. So one pilot might be a little bit more sleepy or weary than the other pilot. So they'll go off and have a sleep. We tend not to watch clocks because we find that's too detrimental to the alertness of the pilot if you're watching a clock when you need to come back on the flight deck. So it's very flexible. We leave it up to the crew because everyone's different and there's that recognition and everyone's different in a different slip port as well. It also depends on people's things like diet, which I know that they're looking at some of the um, university researchers are looking at uh, meal choices for the some of the passengers on board, some of the lighting affects it, coffee or protein. So there's a lot that goes into managing alertness. That's super interesting. And and what I also find interesting is actually all this research is being done on the uh, Boeing 787-9, which was actually not the aircraft that's announced to be um, actually operating these flights. That decision, I believe, is yet to be made uh, coming December, the end of this year. It's going to be either the Airbus A350 or the Boeing 777X. What information are, are you looking together from the 789 specifically that can be ported over to either of those aircraft? Or is it really everything you're learning about what happens on these flights can be ported to really any aircraft that you're going to operate? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the important point we're doing these research flights. It's not just for Sunrise. We can, this is such fantastic data and so exciting research that we can port this over to all our fleets, including, you know, our sort of uh, narrow body or 737 fleets and our other group entities as well. So it's all about how we manage the alertness and optimize, say, the rostering, time in port, what happens on the aeroplane, food choices, maybe liquid choices when they have their meals, how we organize transport to and from the airport. So yes, you're right. The 787 is not the aircraft that has been um, evaluated under the Sunrise project. I've been lucky enough to test fly the 350-1000 over in the Airbus over in Toulouse. And I've also been lucky enough to go and fly the 
what they call the ECAB or the maintenance simulator for the 777X, and that was last year. So, But all this research, it's all portable to our other fleets, the 747, the, A, the current A380, the 330, and the 737, and also other group entities as well. Now, that's super interesting. I, I can't imagine there are many people out there in the world that have flown both an A350 simulator and whatever is out there for the 777X out there right now, I guess, which is your the uh, the maintenance um, simulator, like you mentioned, which isn't actually a full motion, but that's super interesting. What are the differences like on the flight deck of that? Is, is there anything significant or is it really either of these aircraft are going to be ideal in your mind for flights of this very long stage length? Oh, look, they're both, I mean, very superior aircraft. And they both were a pleasure to fly. As you say, the 777X is not built yet. So, you know, it wasn't a full flight simulator, but they both fly-by-wire aircraft with that great technology and composite um, build. The biggest difference, I suppose, was the 777X has got the folding wingtips. So that was a bit of a novelty for me. You know, the Airbus, I've been, I'm endorsed on the 330, so I have Airbus background as well as Boeing background. So I always say that I speak dual language, both French and American. The 777X has got the folding wingtips. So it was really interesting working with that, seeing how that works, the redundancy around that, because obviously from a pilot's perspective, you know, how are they going to manage if there's a failure in flight? So we talked right through that and I was very – and then we actually got to walk through the factory and see how they were building them and how they were built and I got to walk onto the first test aircraft that hasn't been flown yet. But uh, So that was a really – cool opportunity. So yeah, that's what I said to you guys at the start. I've got the coolest job in the world, I think, one of the coolest jobs in the world. So I'm very, very Is there fortunate. anything you have not done? <laughs> well, my next goal is probably space, I think. That's the next one. So, And I've always been saying we need to not fly further. I think we need to fly faster now. So, you know, some, something like suborbital, I think. That seems like a perfectly logical choice given everything we've learned today. And, and that's simply amazing. And and I have no doubt that that we're gonna have to do a second interview once you've come back from space. That that'll be fantastic. All right, we can do it actually in the lead up to space because that'll be very exciting too. But I think we can extend that. So I'm all about. I mean, th- this comes back to our forefathers and our pioneering history that Qantas has had for so many years that we all talk about here. And we just uh, you know we are from the down the the land down under, and we are in the the southern hemisphere but we do push boundaries and this is just a natural progression for us and it's a very exciting opportunity to to gather this sort of data that's never been done before so for the for the the test flights that are coming up you you're going to be uh piloting at least two of the three i've i've heard uh in kind of preparing for the interview we learned that you were in the simulators preparing for these flights and, and getting a, a feel for the some of the medical monitoring and things like that. Have you learned anything in the preparations for these flights that that is either new to you or, or you found helpful already in, in your regular flying? Well, I think the interesting thing is that with these, um, particularly the brainwave activity, the headgear that you wear, there's actually an app on your phone, your iPhone that you can get. So it's a bit worrying when it flatlines, I think. So, <laughs> and it comes back with no no brainwave activity. I've always wondered that about myself, but I think it's important to not lose sight of the operation of the of the actual flight. That's got to be our number one: is the mission of the flight. Secondary then is the fatigue or the wellness testing, if you like. So some of that data we have to make sure that it doesn't interfere 
with, say, the resting pilot or the operation when the pilots are on the flight deck. So I think uh, from my perspective, I'm working with all the teams to make sure that we have a flight deck that can function as normally as possible while trying to get capture this data. So a lot of this data is electronic, as you can imagine. So it has to be sort of self-contained with its own battery and data collection so we don't plug in because we have a lot of instruments on the flight deck which emit a lot of electromagnetic um, interference. So if there's anything going uh, transferring by Bluetooth or Wi-Fi, we have to be really careful what we're plugging in onto the flight deck and make sure that that doesn't interfere with the integrity of the flight deck itself. So in terms of learning, when we're just establishing all that now. So nothing calling out other than my flat line of my brain activity. And so we're doing all this testing in the um, simulated first. Um, once we're satisfied that is safe and functional and effective, then we'll do a little test flight up to position the airplane up to Hong Kong or where it'll be a commercial flight and we'll test the, the gear there and then we'll put it onto these longer flights after that. Well, I would definitely like to see the results of a brain activity measured before and after a cup of coffee. That's what I'm interested in. I know I do. I do think it spikes, but uh, I've got some other gentlemen just doing some uh, other pilots doing some testing first, and they were quite shocked when it flatlined on them as well. Uh, and that's just either bunk, finger trouble with button pushing or not having it switched on. So I think it's really interesting what they what we're going to find. I think, and it'll be interesting. I think for some of the people who are actually being tested as well, to you know, they'll be a bit shocked as well. But it's very exciting too. So after the the three flights in in December, as the decision for for kind of the the hold of Project Sunrise News, what's going to happen after the three flights? Who's sitting down, and what input are you as the the seventy seven fleet manager and and a person who's been intimately responsible for for these test flights? What is the kind of end result of all of this work for you? Well, for me personally, we, we can use this data, as I said, across the across the group, but initially it'll be used to help build a safety case that we'll put to our regulator, who's the Civil Aviation Safety Authority here in Australia, to so we can start looking at creating flight plans, if you like, for Sunrise. Because when we actually fly these commercial flights from New York to Sydney or London to Sydney return, the flights will be about 20 hours, and 20 hours, 21 hours, say. And at the moment, our regulator says that we are limited to 20 hours. So it'll be used initially for a safety case that we'll put to our regulator to say, this is the data we've collected. This is how the controls we've got in place. These are the mitigators. And we'll work, we'll sit down and work with them. Uh, interestingly, I went over to ICAO in Montreal at the start of the year, March, and I met with their fatigue specialists. And we sat down and said, what do they think about all this and the Sunrise case? And I explained it to them. And they're very much of the idea that we go away from prescriptive limits, which came in, which came in 60 years ago with aviation. So if we can um, have city pairs and the, put the controls around those particular city pairs with those particular flight patterns, if you like, and times of departure and arrival, uh, we work out what the periods of low circadian rhythm, the window is, uh, and we put some controls around that. So there's there's actually a couple of airlines in America, which I'm not privy to which ones they are, but they did divulge that the FAAA have got two airlines that currently fly outside their own uh, prescriptive limits at the moment because they've got these city pairs and the controls in place around their own fatigue risk management system and how they 
fly that. So that's what we're aiming to do, and it's it's bigger than Project Sunrise. This goes into our future. So we're about to turn 99 next month, and we'd like to set this up for future success for the next 100 years. You mentioned the the city pairs, and I wanted to ask about that as far as the length of the flight. And, and we've talked about this on the podcast before when we discussed the longest flights. We talked about it when, when the Project Sunrise test flights were announced and, and when Qatar and Emirates were, were launching their rather long flights is that you often spend quite a bit of time on the ground, especially at certain airports where you know from boarding to takeoff can be one, maybe two hours. How is that considered when dealing with kind of time regulation? Are there different kind of concerns as far as rest and, and awareness go when you're just kind of sitting there waiting to take off? We're fairly busy in that pre-flight stage. So for us, the, the we're at sort of a very heightened stage of alertness anyway. And some of our briefings we're reviewing, if you like, to make sure that if someone's briefing is too long, you can actually lose people. Uh, we want to keep it really succinct. How can we do that better? So we're actually going through a period of review of that at the moment. But that's not just for Sunrise. That's for all flights as well. As I said, mentioned before, it's not any different than what we do now because, you know, some of the – I look at also the transport times from the hotel to the airport, then the actual thoroughfare through the airport, through security, through immigration. That takes time as well. So the whole – the whole picture is being looked at. How our pre-flight is pretty, uh, it's only an hour. And once we get on board, that's pretty sacrosanct. Is that the word? So we we keep that, the checks and flows in that sequence, I suppose, very free from disruption if we can. We have disruption management techniques. The periods of low is where we really have to manage it. So there's not a lot of downtime for our crew at the airports. If you're waiting in a holding pattern like at Chicago, you can go from seven, seventh aircraft in the sequence to number 70 because there's a storm coming through the field. Um, we have some procedures to help manage that. We have a checklist. You might have to shut down engines for an extended period of time. And the crew have strategies to try and manage that periods of low, if you like, before they, they ramp up operationally again. Interesting. That was kind of where, where I was going with that is the when you're encountering irregular operations, like there's a storm moving through the airfield or, um, you know, thinking of JFK where, where you're dealing with, you know, a long taxi queue out and, and how you're managing that kind of, I'm ready to go, but wait, now we're not ready to go because the, the airfield's closed. Yeah, we we do that now because we have, we have, we fly into New York now. So on the seven eight seven, that's not unusual for us because of the you know the events that happen or the snow storms that you had you know coming through just recently and and certainly last year. So our crew, you know, you're going through de-icing. You might have to go back to the gate, get some more fuel, and then you go out and de-ice again. And I think one of our crews spent four hours and 11 minutes taxing around JFK at one point. So we are sort of exposed to that because we've been flying to New York for a very long time, just more recently on the 787. Uh, Qantas is no stranger to JFK and our terrible, terrible winter operations. I have to say, though, they're very organized, you know, getting through the, the de-icing machine and equipment. They, they're very much organized and geared for it. If it happened in Australia, because it would be such a shock, I'm not sure we would be geared for it. But um... <laughs> <laughs> from there, just, just cancel the flight. Yeah. If, if we're getting that much snow there, just just call it a day. 
This has been a fascinating look into Project Sunrise test flights and and what's about to happen over the next few months. And certainly we'll be following rather closely the, the actual test flights as well as the results that uh, that come out of that as, as it moves into commercial service. Captain Lisa Norman, the 787 Fleet Manager for Qantas, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. And it's an absolute pleasure. I'm so thrilled to share my passion with you. So thank you for having me on the podcast today and I look forward to talking to you again. Welcome back. I think we should try and convince Qantas to, to fly a fourth flight so that we can go and wear all of those fantastic electrodes and EEG machines they and all that fun stuff. They really don't want to analyze our brains. <laughs> what, is, what, is she, what is she saying? Just, you get flatline. Yep. yep. That's, that's all me all be. day. That's yep. all it would be. It's some fascinating stuff, and I'm looking forward to hopefully discussing after this is all said and done what they found out and if there were any surprises along the way. Yeah, it's very fascinating that I will go to sleep, go to work, come back, go to sleep, and they'll probably still be in the air. Yep, and they'll do it once a day probably. So they have what, three, three, four, six? I don't know. I can't comprehend how many planes it would take to keep them all in the air at the same time. But a handful. So that'll that'll be interesting to see. And we'll know in December, hopefully, which planes will actually be uh, operating the flights. Shall we do our bi-weekly visitation with the 737 MAX? Still grounded. Okay, done. A couple things happened over the past couple weeks related to the MAX, and one is that Boeing is done with the software, and and they say that they're they're getting ready to, to do that, the final phase, I guess, of the, the testing. So that'll be interesting to see how soon that all comes together. There's also been reporting about um, the FAA's close relationship with Boeing and how some inspector general reports have said that that's not such a good thing and that the way that th- that is operated should be revised. Boeing itself came out today with the results of their board-appointed report saying that they're adding a level of safety inspection on top of the existing layers. Also today, Boeing settled the first uh, 11 lawsuits, uh, according to Reuters, with the families of the Lion Air crash victims. And and so each family there will get $1.2 million at least. And earlier this week, Iceland Air announced that they have agreed with Boeing on some partial compensation, but a dollar figure or monetary amount was not announced there. Then, Jason, we have your favorite thing, long-form journalism. Oh, yeah. Read it from top to bottom. That happened to occur this this past week. And I'm referring, of course, to the lengthy, I guess we can say, dueling articles, the first of which was the uh, New York Times Magazine article by uh, Jason. I'll let you say who it's by. The uh, long washer? We'll call him that. Sure. sure. It's uh, William Langwish was the author of the article. He, he's written uh, extensively uh, on flying and, and piloting and, and aviation and was most recently the author of the article about MH370. And so his article, 
I would say basically lays blame at the foot of the pilots of the two 737 MAX crashes and does so in, in about 10,000 words. Um, so a long way to say that it was the pilot's fault, I thought, was my interpretation of the article. Yeah, and you're not alone in that. And I, I think there are plenty of people out there who will overwhelmingly disagree with that outcome. Yeah, I, I'm not saying that that I agreed with him. Uh, in fact, I don't. I'm, I'm just saying that that's what his uh, per- particular conclusion was. And then there were some responses by folks who took issue with that. And, and I thought one of the, the better ones was by a pilot that called into question the assumption that that this is something that we want our pilots to be like uh, you know the calling the, the question of airmanship you know this kind of god mode of piloting where uh, to to fly a plane you, you have to be you know the the best pilot that there ever was otherwise you know you shouldn't be flying and they they took issue with that and kind of explained how the the safety culture and various evolutions in thinking about piloting have have kind of hopefully pushed that aside. I do hope so, and it's um, I don't know. In my mind, it all comes down to the plane was doing something it should not have been doing, and it wasn't due to a mechanical failure like a hydraulic issue or an engine flame out or anything like that. It was the software trying to kill everyone on board the aircraft. And unfortunately, the pilots were not able to overcome it. But the aircraft was clearly defective, and it should not have been doing that. So to place all of that blame on the pilots is just outlandish. So we'll put a link to a few of the various articles that, that came out in the past week or so, and everyone can can take a look at those. They're not short, but some interesting, interesting reading on the 737 MAX. So we'll, we'll leave it at that. Shall we head to Australia? Again? Sure. Why not? Let's okay. go back. Sure. So a Vietnam Airlines 787 was on approach to Melbourne. The gear wasn't down. The tower said, hey, your gear's not down. They went around. They came back. They did it again. And they landed. Perfectly cool. fine this time. Yep. That's my story. And that's all I got. But what is interesting to me uh, about all of this is the, the conversation that it created about you know procedures and what was happening or anything like that. And you know what was supposed to happen, which was the tower and the pilots communicated and they executed a missed approach, which is exactly what's supposed to happen. They, the gear came down. Everything was fine. Yeah. The uh, ATSB... I guess not report, but status update that they issued wasn't exactly um, chock full of details. But I guess we'll we'll stay tuned to see what happened. But thankfully, the they had a particularly alert air traffic controller in the tower that day who was able to spot that. That is not technically speaking their job, nor is it something that they're required to look for. But uh, it sure doesn't hurt. No, it was uh, good that somebody caught it, and even better that it resulted in a, a safe landing. The new airport in Beijing is open. It's big. It it's is very, very big. big. Very, very big. But it's open now. Yes, officially open. It, they've been conducting flights there for the past few months from the beginning of the test flights to the more un, kind of unofficial 
passenger flights and things like that. And now it's officially open. It's huge. You know, the hundreds of it's they're expecting it to, to go to hundreds of millions of passengers a year. Yeah. And it's not quite like uh, some other airport cutovers where we've seen where they close the old one, scoot everything down to the new one and reopen it the next day. Only a few flights from a few airlines have moved over there. And I, I would expect a, a fair number of passengers to end up at the wrong airport over the next few weeks. Yeah, probably. I don't think that you're I don't think that you're wrong un- unfortunately. But um, But it does yeah. look pretty spectacular, it especially really compared to the particular airport I'll be flying out of tomorrow morning. <laughs> but they're rebuilding LaGuardia, so eventually it'll yeah. look, you know, sure. nice. Sure. Sure. Why not? I don't know. Let us close the show with a bit of artwork. Shall we? Is it artwork? I think it is. So SAS has their their new livery. No one's seen it yet because it's still in the paint hanger. But they released the renderings to great fanfare. And I think that it looks quite good. Yeah. And I am very much looking forward to seeing it uh, actually painted. It's better than a few other European livery revisions that have been out recently. It has not totally quashed any creativity or color out of the paint, but it is definitely a bit more subtle than the prior paint job. Well, I mean, the red engines go away. There's a lot more silver and and gray. The gray gets brighter and they add a, a whole mess of silver. And the blue kind of the, the tail is more of a, a kind of a straight down on the tail but uh, I'm looking really looking forward to seeing how how that the large SAS titles on the side in, in silver look and hey there are a few other special liveries Star Wars special liveries announced in the last week weren't there yeah so the Virgin Atlantic 747 G V L I P so I love that you just know that offhand already I told this wasn't even in the notes and you knew it G V lip so that is wearing a Star Wars Galaxy's Edge special livery. So it has the uh, the notes for Star Wars Galaxy Edge at Disney World in Orlando, Florida. But it also has, and this is the actually very nice part of it, a very, very large Millennium Falcon along the side of the aircraft. So very fun to, to see that. Always good to see another Star Wars livery. Uh, Meanwhile, in South America, LATAM Brazil has its own 777-300ER with Star Wars Galaxy Edge co-branded Disney World livery. Uh, PTMUA 300ER uh, has a Stormtrooper on the tail. I don't know what's on the other side, actually. Hmm. Uh, hmm. But I don't know what's on the other side. I don't know if we've seen pictures, but I still want to know where United's Star Wars livery is. They promised it like six months ago. Oh, yeah. They, they claimed it was real. There was a model at the Star Wars convention. I even followed up with Corpcoms and asked, is this real or is this just a model? And they said, yep, it's real. It's coming. Any day now, guys. Any day. So uh, we'll, we'll keep a note on that. United's new special livery, though, did come out this week. Their first of the two uh, Her Art Here liveries. The New York-based artist that won, they painted the first 757 200 and that is november 14102 
So that is the the New York winner. There is a California winner that will have their art painted on a separate 757. So Corinne Antonelli's depiction of New York, including a very stylized, faceted Statue of Liberty and uh, Brooklyn Bridge. Some very cool stuff. And definitely keep an eye out for for that one as well if you are into special liveries. Good stuff. And on that note, we'll let Jason go pack. Yeah, I should do that, huh? I mean, if you're flying tomorrow, you still have plenty of time. I have like 15 hours before wheels up, so I think I'll make it. If you're not zipping your suitcase and running out the door, then, then you've packed far too early. And I did get an, an email from my uh, building management company saying that tomorrow, sometime during the day, beginning at 8 a.m., your power might go out for five minutes. So I'm assuming it will be right at 8 a.m. <laughs> right as you need it the most. Exactly. And five minutes will turn into five hours and you'll have to walk to Detroit. I'll be long gone, I hope. We'll hear about this on the next episode. But this episode has been episode 67 of AvTalk. And I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. And have a great couple weeks. Mm-hmm.